Well, good morning, some of you, and Aaron, thanks for that introduction. It is such an honor and privilege to grow in teaching with y'all this morning. And yeah, we're just going to jump right into it. We have a lot of content to cover with today's stories. And uh, if I go long today, just con- consider it a tribute to Travis, who's on sabbatical. <laughs> we got to honor him. All right. Bit of a tone shift. There are some serious moments in life where the veil of eternity seems to be pulled back a bit. What I mean by this is that we get a sense of how short our lives really are, how urgent our time is. And often during these times, some questions or anxieties which lay dormant rise to our attention. Most recently for me, I had the honor to officiate my grandmother's funeral, actually this past Thursday. Now, I wasn't originally going to share about this. I had a different intro about the importance of first impressions, but there was, an, there was a better overlap that I wanted to share with this story. You see, my family is almost entirely unsaved. So my priority in the homily, you know, the short sermon that goes with weddings, funerals, My priority with it was to share the gospel as clearly as possible with them and to interpret the death in light of that. So I shared about our rebellion against God and his just judgments against us. I shared about the redemptive work of Christ. I shared about how one may receive Christ's generous offer of salvation. And then I said to all gathered, I said this to them, please consider this as that veil of eternity is pulled back before the tyranny of the urgent and the material mundaneness of life creeps back into your routine. I said this because there is this strange tendency for important realities to fade back into the recesses of our minds, for the daily chores and task lists to drown out thoughts on seemingly less urgent truths. And in today's passage, we get to see both ends of that process as God for a moment pulls back the veil and introduces himself to his people publicly for the first time. But then we see how terribly quickly the people allow themselves to move on. Now let's pray before we get into it. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as the body. Thank you for the honor and privilege to teach the body this morning. And I pray, God, that you would bless us, bless me as I speak, And bless this room to listen. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us today to guide us in the way that we ought to go. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, with the first scripture reading, it'll help you to have the passage in front of you. It is on page 61 in the House Bible. We are reading in Exodus uh, chapter 19 today. I'll give you a moment to get there. If someone hasn't read the Bible... I will refer to chapters and verses. Chapters are the big numbers before the sections. Verses are the small numbers before sentences, typically. And these were added later to the Bible to help with referencing. All right. We're going to start in chapter 19, verse 16, after Moses has consecrated the people in preparation for God to introduce himself. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Now the chapter goes on, and God reiterates the commands to set a limit around the mountain and to consecrate the priests. And Moses then goes down the mountain to reiterate the commandment. So let's look at this scene. If the clicker works. There we are. Mount Sinai. The God who rescued the Israelites in the Exodus now pulls back the veil between heaven and earth for a few days and introduces them to their Savior. Friends, this is not the God of abstract philosophical musings who is so popular in our moral discussions today, whose character is so mutable, so changeable, to be able to conform to the whim and whimsy of the armchair theologian or politician. This God, the true God, introduced himself to his people with power and with terror. And the scene is so sensational as you are going through it. We have the peals of thunder, the lightning streaking across thick cloud and smoke. We have the trembling of the very mountain. Could you imagine Horsetooth out there shaking across its surface as all this is going on? On top of this, the sound of the trumpet crescendos in intensity until finally it is broken by God's answering of Moses from the thunder. Put yourselves in the Israelites' shoes for a moment. You have just experienced the wonders of the Exodus, the Red Sea parting, and the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies. And now at the end of all that, this is what you were led into. These were just ordinary people, living largely unremarkable lives under hardship of slavery, just like so many had before. But now they were in the presence of the very creator of the universe, and he called them into his presence in the wilderness. Friends, how vulnerable they must have felt. How small and feeble before God. If this was God's first impression to the Israelites, where it was not just his works that were evident, but his presence. Now we're going to spend the rest of the time in chapter 32 to see how the impression lasted. In the intervening chapters between 19 and 32, we see God give Moses and the people various commandments, including the Ten Commandments. Uh, when Moses tells the people all the words of God and the rules, the people respond, all the words of, that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses records all the words of God, builds an altar, and consecrates with blood the covenant with the people. A bit later, per God's instruction, Moses takes some elders up into God's presence, and again the veil is pulled back for a moment, and they see to some extent the God of Israel, and under his feet is this clear sapphire pavement. Later still, God then calls up Moses again, and Moses goes up to, into the cloud while the glory of Yahweh is still evident. And Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. While he's up there, God gives Moses further instruction and hands him the very stone tablets with the Ten Commandments that were written on by the very finger of God. And now it is at this point 
we come to the passage in which we'll spend the rest of the time, chapter 32, to read about perhaps the most egregious sin committed between the fall of Adam and the crucifixion of Christ in the story of the golden calf. We'll be taking this chapter in chunks. I heard many of you flip, but it's page 72 if you're slow on the uptick. Starting verse 1. I'll also have it up there for you. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Friends, it is hard in our desensitized and often faithless generation for me to impart how horrific these events are. The people forgot so quickly their fear of God. Instead, they demand of Aaron that he builds them idols, and he actually complies. Aaron, who had a greater revelation of God than them. The same Aaron, who was an asset in initiating some of the miracles of God during the Exodus. The same Aaron who beheld God on that sapphire platform I referenced earlier, along with the elders. And of all things, he builds a golden calf. The calf imagery was employed by the Egyptians, whom God had just so thoroughly thwarted. And it was employed by the Canaanites, whom God would crush so soon. It has been said they worshipped what they were wearing yesterday and would drink tomorrow. How utterly faithless and foolish. But friends, that is the nature of all sin. Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist, in one of his sermons, pointed out the communal nature of this event, how the people were brought together. Sometimes it is talked about, often in, I think, liberal circles, the need to be unified, to coexist. In conservative circles, it is sometimes complained that the people are losing their religiosity and need religion. Friends, here we see the Israelites united and fervently religious, and it is repugnant and despicable. God is not arbitrary, so it matters what religion we believe and what we practice. It matters how we are united with each other. So let's move on in the passage and see what God thinks about all this. 7.10 And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may be burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? To kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's look at Moses for just a moment. It is not in vain that Numbers 12.3 records Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Consider what an offer God just made to Moses. This wasn't a satanic temptation. God himself would remove the people who had been and would continue in much greater ways to be such a thorn in the side of Moses. And God would elevate Moses into a patriarch even into the line of Christ, if you're thinking about it long term. Not that Moses knew that. And the judgment on the people was earned, by the way. They made oaths before God to obey him. Yet Moses is only concerned for the reputable name of Yahweh. Absolutely incredible. Would that we follow Moses' example to elevate God's reputation above our own. Now, to address briefly an issue of theology, and while we are in this passage, what does it mean that God relented? Did Moses change God's mind? Well, does it make sense to say that Moses knew better than God as to what would glorify God's name? Or perhaps Moses just cares more than God about God's own glory and name? No, that's, that's absolutely absurd. As complicated as it may seem, God is entirely sovereign. And he chooses to operate within the space-time he created and maintains by the power of his word. And sometimes because of this, he develops or highlights a point through a process. Now, give some thought to this as you're reading the word. Understanding and believing God's sovereignty is the greatest comfort in living out our salvation we have been given. And shouldn't be sacrificed as you think through your conclusions. But I digress. Let's continue on in the passage. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> so Moses descends from the presence of God and sees the people cavorting about an idol. 
In a righteous display of anger, I think, Moses breaks the commandments that were uh, to be given to a consecrated people and tears down the golden calf. He burns it, making it brittle, pulverizes it, and makes the people drink it. It is here at this point in the sermon I'd like to teach the word iconoclast. It means, according to Oxford, a destroyer of images used in religious worship, or abstractly in that first definition, a person who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions. Moses was righteously iconoclastic in how proper it was that he should destroy such an abomination from his people before the presence of God. Now I wonder, for those who are young in this room, why I created a whole slide for this word. Might be something to take note of. Moving on. <laughs> then look in contrast at Aaron, who fumbles pathetically, like Adam and Eden after eating the forbidden fruit. Moses, you know these evil people, just like Adam saying to God, it's this woman you gave to me. Then he goes on, the calf just came out of the fire, like, I don't know, it just happened. He took a graving tool to shape the calf. Yet this is again, friends, something we all do. We try to deflect to whomever we can, but we make excuses in taking responsibility ourselves. We try to distance ourselves from our sin, blame it on our circumstances, anything to acquit ourselves. But do you think God is fooled? The one who created everything and holds it together, he knows everything, but he can't see what you've done. He's the one we all have to answer to one day. I like how William Gurnall put it in his book, The Christian Complete Armor. I put this quote into modern English for you. The more subtle you seem in concealing your sin, the more egregiously you play the fool. None so shamed as the liar when found out, and that you are sure to be. Your covering is too short to hide yourself from God's eye. And what God sees, if you do not put yourself to shame, he will tell all the world hereafter however you may escape in this life. Can't hide from God. It's foolish to hide our sin from him or to even attempt to. But moving on, Moses sees through the lie and doesn't pretend Aaron didn't sin. So how does he deal with this? I'm just going to summarize the next few verses. He calls together whoever is faithful, and the Levites answer the call. And Moses orders them to go back and forth from one gate at one edge of the camp to the other gate at the other edge of the camp and to kill by the sword their kinsmen, presumably all those who are engaging in worship of the calf. And at that time, 3,000 men approximately are put to death. That's estimated to be 0.15% of their population. For reference, in the Battle of Gettysburg, Approximately 3,155 Union soldiers were killed in the battle. In the horrific 9-11 attacks, 2,977 victims died. This was not an insignificant capital punishment. But it doesn't even end there. Let's keep going on with the story. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sins. But if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, 
Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Again, we see the startling humility of Moses. He beheld the sin of the people. He punished them. But then he goes up to God and requests his life be blotted out of God's book. God, however, mercifully declines and sends Moses back down. Instead, God says, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses, though he offered himself up for people's sins, was not acceptable to God as a sacrifice for sins. After all, even Moses, the humblest man on earth, was a sinner, having explicitly murdered someone in his younger adult years. Later on, he would even sin against the Lord, such that he would be denied access to the promised land. No, even the humblest man on earth, if he has sinned, cannot be adequate as a sacrifice for sin. So how about us? Have you sinned? Have you acted against what God would have you do, or even against what your own conscience would tell you is right? My friends, that is all of us. We have all sinned before this holy God. We have all merited that he blotted out our names from his book, a real book which exists and is described in a few places throughout the Bible. You see, sin is bigger than bad habits. It's deadly serious. And notice how God wasn't even content with the 3,000 souls put to death. He sends a plague afterwards to take more. And yet God did, in fact, remember his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses and no one else could ever have foreseen what God had planned in it. So we read in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The fulfillment of God's promises was in Jesus Christ, who has God become flesh. 2,023 years ago, give or take a couple years, God revealed himself to be triune in nature. That is, God has one divine nature that is shared by three divine persons, identified in Scripture as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second person, the Son, was sent by the Father to take on flesh as the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He entered not by invoking storms and cataclysms, shaking the mountains, but in the meekness of a manger. As a baby to a virgin, with only the poor shepherds and the celestial angels to bear witness. He lived a sinless life, and would he would die in crucifixion to receive the wrath of God due to sinners like you and like me. Three days after he died, Jesus came back to life with a new and exalted body, yet still bearing the scars of his time on the cross. Then he ascended to heaven over 40 days later. Now, whoever repents of their sins, gives up their rebellion against God, gives up in the hope of justifying oneself before God on the basis of the works, and instead puts their trust in the perfect works of Jesus, his sacrificial death, and the empty tomb out of which he rose again to life will be born again and saved. You cannot make your name appear in God's book. You must die. But whoever believes in Christ 
has died to sin and is given a new life, a new heart by the resurrecting power of the Holy Spirit. This new person born of the Holy Spirit will have his or her name in God's book. This acceptable sacrifice before God is what we will remember and confess when we actually take communion after this message. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood poured out for our sake that we may have the life he deserved. For the scriptures say, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6. But alternatively, the Bible is not shy about what happens if you reject Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. Here is the consequence if your name is not written in the book of life. Recorded in a vision given to John the Apostle. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who, according, who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Revelation 20. Now before I get into further serious topics of reflection and application, we have a question for the kiddos over the summer as we have the kids in with us uh, during the sermon. We prepare a question. And so my question is, Aaron, you ready with the mic? Wherever you are. There he is. In a moment, while I'm reading the question. (laughs) He didn't have any warning. (laughs) What do you call someone who attacks cherished beliefs or institution or someone who destroys images used in religious worship? First hand up, Aaron will pick. I think we saw one over here. There we go. You say, you say your name and your age first. Maya. Okay. And I'm seven. Okay. And what do you think the answer to that question is? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, that question, what do you call someone who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions? Do you know that? There we go. There Good go. work, Maya. Come on up. I got a prize for you. All right. Got a game for you and a gift card to Dairy Queen. Go enjoy it. Thank you, Maya Park. Fun fact, I actually learned this word from a video game about two years ago. Wherever it is useful. <laughs> but let's move on to serious topics again. There are two common questions I often hear. I often hear 
frequently, really, what is, or why is the New Testament God so different from the Old Testament God? And then another one, is this just a story of history, or how is this story relevant to us? Now to the first question, it seems the confusion starts around stories such as these, where God is so unapproachable and quick to punish sin, whereas the New Testament describes so much about God's grace and patience. Friends, if this is your confusion, I would beg you to be more deliberate and consistent with your reading of the Bible. To answer briefly, the Old Testament God demonstrates immense patience with his people. Just by example, he even shows mercy uh, to the wicked Ninevites, as recorded in Jonah. His love for his adulterous people, even after hundreds of years of their idolatry, is recorded in Hosea. And God's tenderness and kindness is so often extolled by David in the Psalms. Meanwhile, the same God in the New Testament is described as one who will punish his enemies with everlasting destruction in 2 Thessalonians. He's pouring out bowls of judgment to, pour, to punish the earth in Revelation, and he's dwelling in unapproachable light in 1 Timothy. Now to the second question, yes, this story is immensely relevant to us because there is continuity in the Bible. I had too much I wanted to say on this point, so I had to trim it. But I'll at least share these two observations. The people back then had to obey God in faith that he would absolve them of their sins. But now we obey God in faith that he has absolved us from our sins and purchased us for himself from the clutches of death. So we see the pattern of obedience and faith. God removed many individuals from Israel who were disobedient to his commands. Now in the greater holiness of the church... We see God still trims away those who do not belong to him in heart and even removes unfaithful churches. There's a pattern still of God's discipline for his people. And this is where we must be self-reflective. Are we living as God's holy church? And in light of some of the observations I made from the story of the golden calf earlier, I would ask you to reflect on these questions. Like Aaron, are you disobeying something you know in your conscience to be faithful to God because of outside pressures. If your life is laid out honestly before us, do your habits reflect a priority for the glory of God's name like Moses had? Have you been honest about your sins and idols with others? Or like Aaron, are you trying to hide them? If you've confessed these things, have you repented of those things? Have you turned from them? The Bible does not say we should not experience shame for our sins, but the hope of Jesus Christ tells us what we should do with our shame. Have you laid it down at the feet of Jesus and understood what he declared when he said, it is finished? And finally, do you hate what God hates and love what God loves? Or do passages like this bother you? My friends, you must be renewed by the transformation of your mind. Wrestle with passages. But when the clear meaning is understood, let it influence your beliefs and affections. Now please linger on these questions for just a moment. All right. And in addition to the obvious application of the story of the golden calf, I wonder if when you heard the telling of the people's idolatry, if you thought of our own country. I know I certainly did. Sometimes it feels like when we leave church, we are like Moses leaving the presence of God and entering into the presence of a faithless and idolatrous people. 
And especially during this month of June, when so many companies and government entities are waving the pride flag, profaning a sacred symbol of God's mercy, the rainbow. In fact, when I googled pride flag for that image, the search produced an animation of confetti and people marching with the flags. We are in a culture spitting on the kindness of God, who has kept his oath not to flood the earth again with water. Or take, for instance, the golden statue there in the middle. That's of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you see the resemblance. Erected on the New York Supreme Court with its grotesque tentacles, demonic horns, and occult lotus base. And all to celebrate our satanic desire to sacrifice our unborn children for the sake of libertine pleasures, or what's biblically biblically called slavery to sin. And there on the right is a picture of a Baphomet statue in Detroit that Perry reminded me existed. Now I've gotten pushed back for this interpretation. I've been told that Moses was going to the chosen nation, not to people outside the nation. And this is true, but the scope of God's kingdom today is greater than it was then. In Acts 19, it is said, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And in the Great Commission, we are to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. We are in fact like Moses, coming and bringing words of instruction. Except now we bring them to all the people of the earth. And in this, I have these four exhortations. One. Consider your ways and engage. Let's reflect again on our lives. I'm not accusing anyone, but think carefully. Do you know the promises and commands from God? What he expects from you now that he has saved you? Are you making your punches count? What's the effect of your life? How is the investment of Christ multiplying in you? Some who are older than I might say, I'm investing in my kids, I'm discipling them. And to you, I want to say that's great. That is really noble, and that's a calling from God. So please allow me to refresh you with these encouragements to remind you of the vision for it all while it's hard. Continue to teach them to take up the fight for the faith when they are no longer in the household. Keep contending for the faith so they may know how to contend for it. And keep on discipling them to make disciples. Exhortation number two, speak the truth in love. I have made it one of my personal ambitions to quash the artificial gap between truth and love. We must never sacrifice truth in the name of love because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth in 1 Corinthians 13. Similarly, to express the truth in hatred to the world undermines the redemptive work of Christ in our lives since whoever is forgiven much loves much as we learn from the immoral woman in Luke chapter 7. A similar exhortation, exhortation number three, speak truthfully to the lost, prophesy to a city, to a nation, to a world under judgment. We need to warn people with a concern for their soul's eternal destination about the coming decisive judgment of God that may come upon them at any point. Understand the time at which God has brought you into The fight starts with the fundamentals of reality. It's not the fight I would have chosen, but it's the time in which God brought me into. Let's be like the iconoclast Moses. 
not wielding governmental authority to bear the sword per se, but a people who attack cherished belief or institutions, namely the ones leading people to hell. And I wonder, is there any place here God has put on your conscience to engage in this way, to warn the lost? There's school systems here, the Pooter School District, for instance, who are propagating God-hating gender ideology at the admin level. Where's the church to warn them? There's a city interested in pushing so-called progressive agendas that are contrary to God's will. Where's the church to warn them? There's street after street of lost individuals living like blind people, stumbling near a precipice. Where's the church to warn them? Friends, let's be that faith-filled church. We cannot outsource God's commands to us, the church, to our state or to its representatives. We can't expect politicians to fight our battle for the repentance and salvation of the lost. And as long as I am in Fort Collins, as I'm preparing for mission work, I've been growing and taking on the fight against the devil and his minions here in the city. I've spoken up in my company against wicked things that they want to promulgate. I'm engaging in evangelism regularly. And in fact, just about every Tuesday around Sixtus, some guys and I will go to Old Town Square and we go sharing, we pray for people, we pray for our city, and we share the gospel with people. If you feel so led to join us, please do. Otherwise, I hope you'll each consider how you can be faithful to be salt and light in Fort Collins. Now, band, you can come up. I'm on my final exhortation. Be patient and wait for the Lord. This is where we are. Our Lord has ascended to the presence of God and we're waiting for his return. Do not be like the Israelites saying something like, we do not know what happened to Jesus since he has not come back. Do not go past the testimony we have received. As it says in 1 Corinthians, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. We know the end of the story, but we don't know exactly how or when God is going to get us there. All people will appear before God to give account for their lives, except he won't be veiled by cloud and thunder. His enemies will be desperate to run from him, to have mountains cover them from his presence. But we will behold the face of God as no one else has. In the meantime, God may destroy America and everyone in it. He may cause revival. We know he's not going to let this rebellion go on indefinitely. Regardless, we have our marching orders. The clear command of God is to love our neighbor. Love believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. So let's hope in God's deliverance. Let's seek him passionately for our countrymen and for peoples of all nations to be saved and praise his name. He's given you no such command to give up, to become a recluse, no, we are to lay down our lives, to press on under the righteous rule of our King Jesus against the gates of hell, wherein our neighbors, our friends, and for some of us, our very families are ensnared, so that they may be saved in the name of God will be glorified across all the earth. There will be a temptation as we go to the picnic here in a bit to forget these exhortations, 
But I beg you to reflect on these things. Keep eternity in your eyes. Let's pray. Our Father, glorify your name. Take back for us the veils in our minds that bury the truth of eternity from our sights. Grow in us faith to believe your promises more fully and to obey you more truly. Instill in our eyes and in our hearts the reality of eternity. To be horrified by hell for the guilty and to be delighted in hope by heaven for the saved. Let us not fool ourselves by trying to conceal our sin, but give us courage to keep a constant practice of confession. Give us grace to lay down our sins, burdens, and shame at the foot of the cross and experience the joy of thanksgiving anew. Conform our affections to that of your own until we look like your son, Jesus. God, thank you so much for your steadfast love and kindness upon us and your immense patience with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.